0: Oh, what should we talk about? Any questions or themes that I could ponder for you? We could ponder together. What's the meaning of life? Okay, come on. You. Um, can you tell us about what they said they
1: faced with being compassion,
2: loving kindness,
0: sympath, joy. The four Brahmaviharas. Viharas. Yeah. To me it would be the emotional response of an enlightened being. So, where the emotions aren't contracted by ego and things like that. So we can all approach it. And so, for like, human freedom, true freedom and true peace, it seems that we are, we're not just intellectual beings, but also we're heart beings. So that, the practice of presence or awareness to me needs to have some heart quality. Otherwise, a sense of presence can be a sense of control um, or a sense of analysis, trying to get something, doing something. Whereas the viharas are, are forms of empathy. And empathy is always a connection for me. It's a connection to things without my interference. So if I'm uh, if I'm interfering, then there's not real empathy, there's just my own uh, reaction to the situation. So empathy then, to me, is a, a receptive quality as opposed to a analytical quality or an or a, uh, assertive quality or a frightened quality. Right? Uh, so so that, that seems to me to really connect to the way things are. Uh, I need to be receptive to the way things are. So the Brahmi heart is going to talk about the heart which has that kind of empathy and, and just it it outlines the various ways that might take place. So the metta, practice the metta or loving kindness, translated loving kindness, it's rather a difficult translation because loving kindness can sound like you need quite a high quality of empathy. But perhaps an easier way to look at that is... is is um, Goodwill, I think, would be the best way. Just a sense of goodwill to each moment. Not just the Brahma-viharas. The The Brahma-viharas are um, kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And they're a a construct which is very important in Theravada Buddhism. So the first one, metta, M-E-T-T-A. To me, it's the generous sense of goodwill to all beings. But goodwill to all moments of consciousness. The way that teaching is expounded is quite often dualistic: me and you, me, my mother, me, my brother, me, and um, Donald Trump, <laughs> whoever you want. So it's always self and other, right? But actually, how you experience Donald Trump or your mother, or other, is actually as a as a mo- as a mode of perception or. Whatever. So so there is a moment-by-moment experience of life, physical, mental, emotional, and it seems to me to be truly aware of that, you need goodwill. You need to have a an attitude of, uh, like Ajahn Samara says, it all belongs. And you can, you can see your mind going towards ill-will, and you can see that kind of alienating energy, which creates a strong sense of self, uh, me and other, and creates a kind of formation in your mind which preoccupies you and prevents peace from taking place. So if you see the mind moving towards ill-will, either towards yourself, others, towards the neighbor's dog, towards the snow on the ground, towards the, you know, whatever, it doesn't really matter, ill-will, you realize that very ill-will uh, prevents peace. And you say, well, goodwill, goodwill is that which allows things to be the way they are. Goodwill isn't, isn't like condoning, like I don't condone the bombing of Syria, you know. I don't condone the um, exploitation of children, I, you know, I don't condone that, but somehow it all does belong, I don't, don't approve of it, and my aversion to it, and my hatefulness of it, or my self-righteousness of it, creates in my own mind uh, aspects which are unskillful. So I might quite justifiably hate someone who is a, you know, who's bombing people in Syria, you know, and everyone would agree with me. That's that's a hateful situation. But the very fact that I allow my mind to dwell on hatred means that that's the way my mind will function. And that very hatred will always preoccupy me in a way. Whereas empathy doesn't preoccupy you. Goodwill doesn't preoccupy you. You know, when you feel, when you have, Let's say, you know, when you forgive someone, say, you know, someone's really done something to you which is unfair and, and so on, and, and you can just quite, you know, work it through and then you can go to forgiveness, story's over. You're not preoccupied. If you can't go to forgiveness and the mind just goes and dwells on, on ill will, um, then the mind's preoccupied. It's preoccupied with conditioned realm and the chance to realize peace is denied you. So it's not just, it's not sentimental. You know, sentimental is, yeah, all puppy dogs are nice, you know, but when the wolves eat the puppy dogs, you think, hmm, not nice. But that's all natural, right? So sometimes people don't understand metta, they think... That some. Sometimes people who are very cynical see the practice of goodwill and they think, oh, it's all just sentimental Buddhist twaddle, right? It's rubbish and so on. That's the cynic. cynic. Uh, and and the, and the sentimentalist would just say oh we're all one you know it's all loving but it's not you know we're different <laughs> we have disagreements and so on so goodwill is like an attitude rather than a position that you take and goodwill is a method it's not it's not a goal in itself goodwill is a method because with goodwill you can you can be with all things not grasp them and your mind moves towards peace so it's very very important so i, I you know, for me I think awareness and goodwill have to be conjoined, to be truly aware. And that means you can be goodwill you can have goodwill towards your ill will. And that seems like a contradiction, right? But like if I feel ill will and that comes up just because of karmic situation, I can know that. And I can say, Well, that's all right too, but not hurt anyone. And not not think think thoughts of ill will. That's different. Like thinking deliberately, okay, you know, I hope, I hope you drop dead, hope you, you know, I hope you hit a, hope your bank account goes down the tube. That's de- that's deliberately. But anger itself is not a deliberate thing. Yeah, you know, it comes because of, of, uh, like you're tired, you're exhausted, karmically it's there, you know, all kinds of factors. So, I don't think there's anything wrong with anger, but it's the misunderstanding of anger as a natural phenomenon that gets into self-disparagement or hatred of others. Yeah? So if you, have, if you see that, like, if you make metta a broader thing than just liking everyone, or a broader thing than um, um, just having a loving feeling all the time, right? You make it a broader thing. It's, it's more like awareness is, is boundless, and awareness includes all, it all belongs then I think you have the combination of, uh, of awareness and, and metta as the transcendent possibility. Okay? And then to, to, to deliberately uh, bring that forth, and we do very deliberate practices. So in this practice I said, you know, bring up someone, bring them into your heart, and, and get a sense of what heartfelt goodness feels like. And if you do that, and you, and you, you use the very people that trigger that off, and you get a sense of what heartfelt connection is like, then, and you become really uh, intuitive with that and very uh, present with that. So it's not just about me and my teacher, but it's about all the time. Then, when my heart contracts into fear, anger, greed, or whatever it is, I'm, I'm aware, kind of down here, rather than just up here, and I can see that happening. I see the heart contracting. I can go back to goodwill. So, so if you, I found if I. If I develop a strong sense of heart center uh, and my mind starts to go off into um, worrying or something, I you know quite a way I can resolve it through the heart. If I try to resolve it through thought, I usually just get more worried. because It's the same, it's the same um, form. So metta has these, these kind of transcendent aspects rather than jest. But it's met- the methodology to, to get you there is by using things which trigger off easily goodwill. So gratitude is very good. Gratitude is very, you know, for most people, they have some sense of gratitude to someone or something, and they connect to that, and then the heart's open. And then any time you have an experience where the heart's... There was someone in... um, uh, Berkeley, and and, and she was saying, she has a lot of fear and so on, and then I asked her, but what about the feelings you have for your son? Oh, oh, very open. And you see, she has both. And, and I said, "Well, just get to know that area, feel it when it closes down, feel it when it's open, and then you you have a way that that for me it seems you, you have a way of going beyond just the kind of endless self-criticism that we have of, of our faults, because self-criticism is not really goodwill. It usually comes from idealism and uh, over-refined uh, intellectual kind of capacity to find to find and criticize fault, right?" Um, so the more you you exercise that part of your psyche, the more you have a, an intuitive sense of what non grasping is of non attachment um karuna karuna is the feeling of compassion, and that's the feeling that that is the empathy for someone who has is just down in their luck sick ill um just not doing quite well. It's the opposite of cruelty, so it's the balance to cruelty and and uh that's that's for most of us in, in this Buddhist path. That's for most of us quite easy to to relate to, quite easy to relate to. Um, but its downside is that we we when we have a lot of empathy, sometimes we get burned out. So someone we are very close to, we love dearly, and they start to feel a lot of pain or a lot of uh, sorrow in some kind of way. We don't want them to be that way. Which is a good wanting. But sometimes we attach to that wanting and then we somehow think we can fix it. And in the trying to fix it, we kind of lose sight of, of the other brahmaviharas. viharas So we get lost in... So compassion then moves to desire not to have suffering. And then that moves into burnout, resentment, whatever. Um, the, the third one... Mudita is the empathy of joy, the empathy for, I, I see it, empathy obviously for a person that, that when you see their, their goodness, you feel this, this great sense, ah, hey, good on you. So usually you, the, the most obvious thing is when you see a, a, a child who is, is kind of radiantly happy about some trivial thing and just bubbling over with delight. You know, most of us say, ah, oh, yeah, really nice. We're not jealous. Uh, we're not petty. We don't say, oh, it's all changing, right? <laughs> it's all suffering, right? You know, we're truly happy. And that empathy, that joy, is a very important uh, uh, aspect to, to make conscious because sometimes, you know, Theravada Buddhism sounds very dure and it is sometimes. You're working through your stuff. But there's a lot of uh, quite joyous qualities which are not unwholesome. Like like we would say, there's wholesome and unwholesome mental states. The sense of empathy and, and the joy of that, of other beings, is a very wholesome state, and it's encouraged to develop that. Um, so anytime you feel that with someone, you know, with, with a family member or, or whoever, um, even if you see the Oscars and you start crying <laughs> whatever, that that empathy. Try try to bring it into your meditation. The following meditation you do. So let's say during the day, one of your colleagues, yeah, you know, has a really good result in some clinical experiment or whatever, and feels oh yeah, look at this insight I got, I'm feeling really uh, bubbly, and you feel happy for them. Then when you meditate that evening, make that conscious. Oh, this is the happiness of other one's happiness. And then use that as an entry point into your meditation, because it's very—it's very light, it's very open, and it's not—it's not—it's not desire. It's not like getting something that you want. It's different. It's a selfless kind of joy. Um, I think, yes.
1: Can that also be uh, noticing your own your own joy? Oh, sure. Your own joy. Sure. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Your own your own goodness, and that's very hard to do. Quite often,
1: because I, I know I see times you know where I'm delighted with you know something that's happened for me. Uh-huh. So is that the same? Yes,
0: connecting to that. Yes, yes, yes. It's that that, um, and and quite often we're dismissive of our own beauty, you know, of our own goodness, of our own morality, and and our teachers are always encouraging us. No, you don't remember you're you're doing a good thing. This is good. This is awesome. I I also connect that mudita to to. Um, uh, aesthetic beauty because there's something about aesthetic beauty which if you don't want to own it stops the mind mm-hmm. like like you know nature mm-hmm. you go out and, you know go canoeing on a sunny day in pike lake it can just stun your mind into the silence and that's that sense of appreciation uh, helps you to to drop the self constant self selfing that we do you know, in, in thinking about ourselves and so on, so that's a, a very um, important. It doesn't get talked about so much, uh, maybe because people tend to maybe feel it later on in their practice. But it's a it's there all the time. It's there all the time. They just like like modes of gratitude are quite often like medita too. You know, someone someone that does something really nice to you, and you're just so happy for them being so good. You know. You know, good on you, know, that kind of thing. Uh, and it is a form of empathy again. It's like you're getting out of the way. Then upekha, which is the, the fourth, upekha is defined as equanimity. And that's that evenness of heart, which accepts that the, the, the chant that we do, all beings are the owners of their kamma, heirs to their kamma, born of their kamma, whatever kamma they shall do, for good or for ill, of that will be they will be the heirs. So it has a very Buddhist... Uh, sensibility to it in, in terms of, of, of karma. But if you understand karma rather than as rebirth from the past and, and like some past existence which may or may not exist if you just see it that um, as, as the intentions that I make create the results that I get, then you get some feeling of equanimity. So when you see someone let's say who is, let's say if you meet some elderly person and they've lived a really unkind life, and they have no friends, and they're very lonely, you say, well, you know, this is the result. Where it's hard to bring that up, all beings are the owners of the Kama, when when good things happen to bad people, when bad things happen to good people. This is the age-old philosophical conundrum that we can't solve. Buddhism solves it by saying that this is not, this consciousness right now isn't, isn't just limited to this lifetime, that there are other other streams of consciousness which are affecting this. I, I don't know. I believe in that. I don't know. But as a strategy of acceptance, I find it quite useful that for some reason, this is here now, we're here together now, we're the owners of our come, born of our come, okay, uh, how can we work with this rather than resenting it? Um, so upekai is the peaceful coexistence with the way things are and it really conjoins with metta where metta says it all belongs so even the pain of my mom or even the pain of a friend or the loss that a friend has or whatever, it all belongs it doesn't mean that I don't try to help it doesn't mean that I even condone it or say it's right, but it's there, it's a part of nature and the and the is quite quite hard it's, it's a really different one to stay cool and and centered, but, but centered and, and compassionate, you know, it's both. Mm-hmm. If you didn't have the, the the kindness, compassion, and joy, you could have a very cold mind, heart, and, and just say, well, it's all their karma anyway, leave me alone kind of thing. But if you only had compassion, and you didn't have that, what would you do with all the suffering in the world? It would be very hard to be with it. The, um, the imagery that the, the the analogy that the text gives is very simple, one with uh, a mother with a child. And the mother with a child, quite naturally, feels goodwill. That's easy. Always, oh, oh will you be well? Uh, when when the child is, has the flu, oh, incredible compassion comes out. When the child gets, uh, uh, you know, makes a... I remember once I made a... I don't remember making it, but my mother still had it. It must have been like grade three. I made a pincushion. You know, one of those little projects that... Grade three, I would have been, what, eight? And my mother still had it. (laughs) The craftsmanship was dodgy, but... That wasn't the point. So the mother, you know, as a little little (laughs) fellow, brings, oh, look at the (gasps) pincushion. Wonderful, Da Vinci. (laughs) So that's easy. But when the child gets sick or when a child has its own suffering, or the child gets beat up at school, or the child flunks the grade, or when the child gets caught up with drugs, or, you know, all the things that children can do, it's very hard to have upekā, very, very hard. Uh, and, and to see that this child now has to go through their own evolution, learn in their own way. So that upekā towards the child is in the context of the others. In the context of kindness, in the context of compassion, in the context of joy, and that, like with parents, I don't—I mean, I've never been a parent, but I—I'm I, sure if I would have had kids, the fear factor would have been overwhelming. I don't know what I would have done, especially in this modern age, especially considering what I did as a youngster. <laughs> so, it's a very uh, important teaching, and and. Uh, it's, it's not so much intellectual. You It doesn't take much to understand it, but to constantly come come to a heart, heartfelt sense of, of the moment rather than just an analytical sense. Because that, as Westerners, we tend to do that very, very well. You know, We tend to get the analytical parts pretty easy. And then the analytical part can very easily morph into just a, a constant thinking about. Where the analytical parts is really just taking us to Awareness of the way things are and letting go—that's that's really what it's about. And that if if you if you're working more at the heart, it's actually quite simple. It's much much more simple. Liberation in Buddhism—it's it, you know the, the the Buddha tells us there is the unconditioned, the uncreated, the unoriginated, the unformed, the island, peace, the harbor, uh, the deathless. You know, there's, there's this beautiful beautiful language. Of a possibility, and then he says, "What is nibbana? Having nothing and clinging to nothing. That's it. Having nothing, clinging to nothing. Now, what's that about? Well, if you if you think about first of all presence, if you're present to the way things are, you're not owning anything, even your body, even your body. Your body feeling like a, like maybe a tension in the arm or whatever. You're really present to it. You're not really owning it." You're just aware of it in as a, as an element in consciousness, and then if if you if you see how if you constantly bring yourself to empathy, to the way things are, this kind of it all belongs. You're not owning it either, and you're allowing it to be just as it is, and you begin to see that the peace of the mind is not own, not having, and not clinging, and and that's that was the that was the definition of poverty, in Christian mysticism. You know, the the highest the highest saintly aspect that you could uh, realize or abide with was poverty, but not poverty as being impoverished, the poverty of not owning anything. There's a there's, I think my, the only quote I know from Nietzsche is "Blessed be a moderate poverty, for he who possesses little is so much less possessed." Mm-hmm. Right, and not just about things like an apple computer or something like that right it's it's about this 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 thinking mind and our memories and our projections and, and all of that that's going on that we're constantly being owned by aren't we wouldn't you say that we're being owned by our our our, our obsessive thinking and and yeah, it just goes on and on so so not owning that. How do you do that? You know that—that's the challenge. And the way it happens is quite often, you—you you, you're confronted by life where your fears are really stimulated, your anger is really stimulated, your greed's really stimulated, some doubt is really stimulated, right? And it just blows up in you. And there, how do you live with that and not own it and yet be responsible to it? And if you can live with that, and and, and see it as a condition then what gets really strong is presence rather than the object of presence. And so quite often, that which really liberates you is that which is most painful and boring and, and, and distracting because that's what tends to own you all the time. That's what tends to own you. So as I, I always give my example, I had a lot of fear, but the fear is what owned me. And when I began to no know fear in a way that I didn't dismiss it, but it didn't own me, by being very very patient, then as that fear fell away, then the sense of being owned by something ends, and the mind is freedom. Right? Nothing, because <laughs> I'm not owned by anything. And and I think the the Brahma viharas is a very very important in that you know in that heart sense. There's a, Meister Eckhart has this the master, I can Saint John of the Cross. thanks it's the master, one of those. <laughs> Way back in my cross reading, there was a he has a he has a diagram, and it's got all the all the saintly qualities, but around the edge, nothing, 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 nothing. <laughs> you know, if you're just a rationalist, again, he's on his head, right? He's crazy. But if you if you see what that's pointing to, that the sense of presence is no thing. Right? it's not hot it's not cold it's not big it's not small it's no no thing but there is presence and to and to refer to that rather than to the object's a sense you have to let go of the desire to have a certain object so no object can fulfill you you know when when we when we have when we have desire for objects uh, are we really looking for the objects or are we looking for the end of desire that's what we're looking for we're not you know, you're not looking for the computer or the person. You're looking for the end of desire. And, you, and we think that the end of desire comes by getting the object and owning the object. You get it, you own it for a while, not it. Right? Rebirth. Let's get another object. But if you see that the, that the real... Uh, what we are looking for can never be an object. We're looking for the end of desire. Then as your mind goes looking for objects, you say, it can't be it. You look at them wanting and as you look at the wanting, now you got now you're doing it right. But of course, the wanting is like an itching. You know, it's like an itching and a scratching. So, ah, heck with it, I'll scratch, and it feels good for a while, and then you want to itch again. Right? It goes on and on until you stop scratching. And <laughs> stopping scratching when it itches is very, very hard. Take something like uh, like worry. Worry is classical itching and scratching. You know, some unknown possibility comes up in the future. So you plan it out, but it's still unknown, no matter how much you plan. And then you're sitting there quite innocently, and then, but if? What if, right? That's unpleasant, right? So that unpleasant begins to own you, because you want the pleasant, and you start to worry. And the odd thing about worry is that it does feel good, (laughs) because you think you're coming to a solution. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Then I'll do this, then I'll, I'll do this, and that's scratching, right? And you scratch for oh, that's good, that's good. Okay. And then you have a conclusion. Then I'll do A, B, C, D, E, and then you sit there. Oh, that was nice. And then, oh, but what about F? <laughs> <laughs> and you're <all> off again, <laughs> scratching, scratching, scratching. Because you didn't, you weren't able to stay with the itching, and the itching was the unknown. It's unknown. And then, and then, oh yeah, and you get down to X. It just goes on and on. Until one day, you're no longer worried about the objects, but you're looking at the itching. And as you look at the itching, you see, oh, that's desire. And you begin to not grasp desire. And as desire ceases, then you have nothing, and you are not clinging to nothing, you own nothing, 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 nothing. (laughs) And then the presence becomes very obvious, that that pure presence, not dependent on objects, is your real home. That's what really lies. So it's a it's a kind of arduous path because it's so nebulous. If, if I said to you, you know get a PhD then <laughs> in four years you would be in life. <laughs> if only I'd flunk but it's a very subtle you know one of the one of the the synonyms of Nibbana is the subtle. it's the subtle, the island, the refuge, peace, that kind of thing. Yes.
3: Um, so when you say look at is it something like that you, that you can start with the bodily feeling that you sort of like are aware of and you have a certain mood in the
0: mind? Yes, yes, yeah. Connect the two. Get to know that the mind body is one experience. Can't be two, right? If you feel angry you have tension. If you feel fear you have tension. If you feel greed you feel tension somewhere. Because your mind is not satisfied, it's not relaxed, it wants something. Uh, so the moods will be different, but they'll always register in the body. So the more you have body awareness, the more easy it is to see this as, as, as a condition, as an object. When you take it to thought, you tend to just proliferate and and recreate. Recreate the mood or get stuck, you know, judge the mood or whatever. You don't... It's very hard to... One of the things we need to do, the kind of phrase that L'Ompostomera used a lot, was consciousness is the escape hatch. Yeah? So when things become triggered in consciousness, is actually very, very good. Unpleasant things, fear, anger, whatever. Um, because now, you're, if you're aware of them, you've got a chance to develop awareness around something that kidnapped you always. Huh? And because you can do that now, then the propensity to go to that direction falls away and you you are brought back to your real home. So the, one of the ways to do that is through body awareness. So if you feel like, okay, if you feel worried, right, worry will have a mental component, there'll be a storyline with it, and and at some rational level you have to figure out your pension plan or who's going to pay for the mortgage or there's enough gas in the car. So you have to do that, I'm not dismissing that. But the thing about worry is that you tend to just get caught in the narrative and try to think your way out of it. And usually that doesn't work because the very worry is coming from fear, which is not rational. It's karmic. It's been conditioned into the mind for some reason. But if you, if you look at worry and fear as, as, a con, as an energy construct, which is coming into consciousness, and you stay with the energy, right? then that energy comes into consciousness, but it burns away. So we say nibbana is the cooling of the fire. So it burns away through you being patient, through you not attaching to it. And as it falls away, as it falls away, then it doesn't arise anymore. And then the desire to get rid of it isn't there, and your mind begins to have deep peace. So both the the construct that came, which bothered you and created so much desire, that falls away. And then there's no no need to there's no desire around it because it's fallen away. So the mind begins to have peace because it's freed of that kind of stuff. Sometimes we say it's the end of the outflows of the asava. You have these kind of words of the floods of the mind, those kinds of things. And I think we all experience that. If you think about, you know, as a teenager, the stuff your mind got up to, right? Embarrassing. (laughs) And and, and then now you see that these outflows are less deluding. You know, they are less deluding. So if you have faith and awareness of change, then you, you you see what non-grasping is about, and these energies begin to fall away. So the natural result is a, a, a noticing of, of freedom, a noticing of the peace of the mind, rather than in getting peace as an experience which then falls away on you. Yeah? Mm-hmm.
3: Um, so when you you say the situations that trigger those conditioning or the outflows, does that mean that for some things that it, it would be like deep within you, you didn't even know that it existed or something? Sometimes, yeah. Or like, uh, so does that mean you have to put yourself in situations to no, them?
0: No, I never recommend that. There's enough rubbish to work with. <laughs> some people recommend that, but I'd, I... I think that there's enough ego going on that whether it's shallow or deep doesn't really matter. It's the same practice. So, And also you do need some rest of the mind. You need samadhi okay, to actually do this work. So so to protect yourself, to try to create a good environment, um, to not be overstimulated by difficulties is very important because then, you, then your mind has enough strength to deal with things as they come up in, in more minor ways. Because you can get overwhelmed by stuff. You, know, you, you put a person in a situation where it's bigger than them and, and it's just too much. So, um, like, like the, the, the monks aren't asked to go to a brothel to look at lust, right? <laughs> 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 you don't know, no, Buddha didn't say that. <laughs> but there's enough lust in the mind, just watch it when it comes up. Don't make it a problem. Or, or to go into to a war zone to look at fear, right? So definitely not. Um, And you don't have to live out all your karma. If you had to live out all your karma, it would be impossible. There's so many things. It's just, it's actually, the most important thing is living, is developing a sense of presence as things arise. So whatever arises, if it's it's very uh, not, if it's very, if it's very simple, non-complicated, it's quite good, then you can develop more mindfulness. If it's very complicated, usually it's very hard to develop mindfulness because you're dealing with so many factors. That's why renunciation, simplification, all those things are you know much recommended in the Buddhist path. <laughs> so the triggers are your 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 partners in developing strength, even though you don't have to tell them that. But some triggers are too strong, and you need to back off. Right? What else? Any more? Yes, please.
3: Um, so then, when you try to watch these triggers of things that, like, our bodily feeling or something like that, sometimes it's overwhelming, like you said. So, does it mean that you have the the the, um, the refined mind is always not present? So. Does it mean that you have to refine your mind sometimes when it's overwhelming, and then go into awareness, or like how how do you bring your mind to that? Stage? Well,
0: first of all, you always keep precepts, yeah, and then you try to sit. You try to create situations of non distraction where you can meditate and strengthen your awareness, right? And then you live your life, and then while living your life, some things are very coarse and very obvious, and then you just have to be very patient with them. You just have to, just basically don't blow it. (laughs) Don't hurt anyone, don't hurt yourself, right? Um, But what happens with those more coarse energies is over time, because you've not grasped them, they become more refined, they're not so strong, and your understanding of them becomes more refined. So if I think back to my own practice, uh, the confusion I felt as a young monk, um, could we maybe close the windows a bit? Matthew, you want to? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. So the confusion I felt as a young monk was just overwhelming, but at least I didn't punch anyone. Or you know, I didn't didn't say things which are too bad. So so I was aware enough of it that I didn't create bad karma around it. But then as as as, as the mind had more strength. So the question is how do you get the, give the how do you get more strength in a sustained awareness, partially through lifestyle? You know, the, the the less confusing your lifestyle is, the more you can strengthen awareness. So if you see awareness in the beginning, it's like a little little plant It needs a lot of protection from the deer, from drought, needs needs feeding, and so on. And so to put this little plant uh, on a motorway is not a good idea. You got to really protect it when when awareness is stronger, then it can kind of go out into more complex situations. So refinement, you can get refinement through meditative practices and get very attached to that right you can you can like sense depri- deprivation is interesting when you get on a retreat, say people have sense deprivation basically. plus they're doing a lot of focused practice. so they get mind very very still. but that stillness is quite often not the stillness of the background, it's the stillness of having held the mind with sense deprivation on the object. Then, when they're out of that environment, they have a really hard time. you know they, they get really angry you know, and they think, "Well, I have to go back to retreat to get that refinement, but that refinement is still conditioned, it's not the unconditioned, whereas the background of silence is not conditioned; it can see coarseness arise and cease, rise and cease so so that's one thing you want to differentiate the capacity to to meditate and get the mind really really really, really refined and still. Right? which is okay. But then see that that stillness can always be there even within emotion, within thought, within bodily feeling. And that's where you want, that's where you want to get your practice to, where it's not dependent on condition. So, if you, if you see meditation practice not so much as getting refined states of mind, but maybe uh, as a way of strengthening the capacity to be aware. Because you think, you sit for, we sit for 45 minutes now, and our intention, basically, is to be present. Even if your mind wanders off, because you're not really distracting, minute by minute by minute by minute, you're making the intention to be mindful, to be present. And that will strengthen your capacity to be mindful and to complicated. That's why meditation can be so important. Because it, it, it's a kind of... You know, it's like doing calisthenics or wind sprints or something awful like that. And even if your meditation seems hopeless... Still, you're there noticing that your meditation feels hopeless. You're still, you know, you're still present to it. So that's very very strengthening. And then I think over time, those areas of your life which are quite upsetting or, or disturbing or, or difficult, you begin to say, okay, that's important that I learn how to just bear with that. You know, This is something that's just hard, strong karma with me. And you get better and better just bearing with it until it wears out. And it might take a long time, and that's that's always very confusing because you, you, you kind of you think you have it sussed out, but then the, the energy of this karma sometimes is so surprisingly strong. Right? That, that's my own my own my own cases with fear was like, um, why is it so strong? It just made no real sense. So I said, I'm the owner of my karma, heir to my karma, and then I knew. Well, it's not. I'm not the author of this fear. I don't sit down in the morning and think I'm going to have a panic attack at 4, 8, 4 p.m., right? Don't do that. But there it is. It arises and says, oh, this is, this is what they mean by kamma. I just have to be patient. Be patient with it. And those gentle, humble, persistent reminders are very, very helpful. If you think you're the author of your anger and your fear and that, then you just get self-critical. You, know, you just think, I shouldn't be angry, I shouldn't be fearful. But, but if you were really the author of this, you wouldn't do it. Wouldn't write the book, <laughs> so you're right. You we are responsible, but the arising of the, these things is just through the momentum of life, life's conditioning. Yes.
1: So <clears throat> sometimes lately, when um, I've been sitting, if I sit for a longer period of time and begin pain begins to arise, I I can watch the pain and then there actually seems to almost be a split where I sort of see this um, this more spacious, bigger um, component in which, you know, like the the pain and whatnot is going on over here, but there's this kind of spaciousness that says, well, you don't have to move, you know, like even if I'm sitting on my own where I could move or whatever, don't be, would be disturbed, right? But it just feels like, well, you can let go of that. It's just, those are just, uh, you know... Physical things that are happening
0: right now, and it's excellent. That's what we mean by emptiness. You know, you're you're, you're empty of the of the uh, sense of possession of the body. Body is body, and it's brilliant. It's surprising, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it is. It's like the the kind of spaciousness. I, I don't even. Well, it doesn't feel like it's me. It feels like it, it's just. It's there. Exactly. It's part of what the experience is in this moment, you know. And and then over here, there's this coming and going of
0: a bodily physical. Form. Develop that a lot, you know. Develop that a lot because that that's the intuitive place of peace, and it's not something you contrive. You're just going to come upon it.
1: Yeah, I know. As long as you say, like, how do you develop it? I'm just, <laughs> I don't have any inclination to develop it, but if, if I, I can notice it. Notice it. Notice, it notice it. and, it and say, it when it comes. This up. is
0: good. Okay. Mm-hmm. This is wholesome. This is skillful. Yes.
2: I, I refer to it as saying like a, a feeling of nothingness. Yeah. There's no. There's nothing.
0: And yet there's presence. And uh, yeah. Yeah. This is the the irony of the mystery of it. Yeah. And that's I think we all have that intuition, and we just need to honor it. Uh-huh. The more we honor it, somehow intuitively, we'll notice it. But it's not something you get with desire. As soon as you put desire in there, there's a me, and there's my desire to get something, and it gets all...
1: So, at the same time, last week, I had, like, a a big uh, interpersonal turmoil with, uh, with someone, and, you know, like, found myself lying in bed, you know, like, for hours, just, you know, telling the story, and and noticing a little bit of this spaciousness and sort of saying, you know, like, couldn't you get bigger or whatever? Yeah. <laughs> and, and it was, in some ways, it was discouraging, you know. And at, at other times, I just laughed. I just laughed because, you know, this is the crazy <laughs> yeah. You know, like, and and that, it, it does feel discouraging sometimes because you feel like, oh, I've been doing this for a long time. You know, like, how could something like this sort yeah. of blow up on me? And
0: It's, it's <laughs> the Chinese call it that enlightenment is the death of a thousand stabs. <laughs> the uh, ego just getting stabbed <laughs> and just beating you into humility. <laughs> but if, if I may recommend, if you can, if you can, in general, feel how thought is in your frontal lobes, uh-huh. attention, and and learn how to slide your attention down to the throat, and then try to have it abide with the heart. as a a constant exercise, then when your mind does start to get launched forth, that launching forth is just a symptom of something that's been activated, strong karma in some way, so there's nothing wrong with that. But the processing of it, if you you can do it uh, through the body and through the heart, uh, is very interesting. So, like I recommend to people, notice the heart when it's open, in the sense of gratitude or beauty or whatever, and and so you, you, your your awareness abides here more and more, so that when you get a, an experience like that, you've got some training of going to the heart. Mm-hmm. Right? You don't. That doesn't always have to be with something negative. Mm-hmm. You've got a kind of um, what would I call it? It's like the go-to place or the default place. Yeah. Our default mechanism is thought, unfortunately. And then that default mechanism is very conditioned by judgment and self and so on. So if you can change the default mechanism from the thinking mind to the feeling heart, but just going there, then when those things happen, you tend to do that. You tend to do that because you have been doing that. It's, it's become your your skillful habit. Right? And then you can you can you can process it through there. And in some way, as it gets triggered off you you do have a chance to kind of liberate that from consciousness, that tendency. We have a uh, we have a we have this word anusaya, latent tendency that when you know we think we're okay, but when the conditions are all put together for us, bam, this latent tendency come, comes, and it's always surprising how powerful it is. But if you say, okay, this is purification. I'm just going to be patient. It's much easier to be patient through the heart. But the thinking mind just says, oh, why is it this? Way? It goes on and on. And then you're so fed up with the mind, right? And you mm-hmm. want shut up while you up there. And, you know, it's just in an argument. It's horrible. Or you just distract and eat yogurt and order a pizza and watch TV <laughs> or something. <laughs> That's the other way. Okay. Uh-huh. I, I'm
2: coming back to what you were talking a bit a while ago with the uh, the mother and the child, and it's uh, it refers to karma. I have. Uh, I seem to have... Not too many problems except in karma when it when it has to do deal with other people, but as a mother when it happens to my child and that was since they were young because just just a need and a mother, but uh, it it was this year I had I experienced something with one of my children my my youngest child and he had to have an operation and and it was hard for me to to you know say. Well, this is part of what he has to go through. This is his karma. This is his life. And, and to let go. And it was very difficult for me to do that. Um, because yeah, because you're his mother. Yeah.
0: You're, you're, you're made to save the child, right? And the child's yeah, come from you. Want to, you want to take that... Do you want it? to take that pain away? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So what, you know hard. what? I I mean, I don't. I've never had children, so the closest I've come to that was with my own mother. But I always knew that my mother's, you know, love of me was greater than my love of her. Because I think there's a, there's a different relationship there. But it was deep. But what I started to watch is my desire for her not to suffer. Right? So I was compassionate and tried to serve her and so forth. And so forth. Now what's the wanting here? I don't want her to have pain. And if I if I got a hold of that wanting, then I saw that's where the tension is here. That's where the tension is. And I just oh yeah, I don't want mom to have pain. But I, I did everything I could. But being born in a body.
2: Uh, yes, and I sometimes wonder if that that wanting to take away the pain is sort of selfish also.
0: It's still a me wanting something, yes. isn't it? Yes, isn't right. It? Yes. It's not the same as wanting a Rolls Royce, but it's yes. still a me wanting something, and it and it's 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 it's, it's you know it's biological. It's very, very powerful. But if you can if you can just feel the wanting. And that wanting comes from not wanting pain in another person. So, oh, yeah. But pain is natural. It's this way. If you just look at it and say, oh, this is birth. Birth has this. Come to that. Then then you're slowly resolving that. I mean, it's very hard. And then I, again, I, it's easy for me to say I don't have kids. But that's what we're trying to do. Well, up. What if,
1: uh, if you're trying to do that and then it is received as being selfish rather than
0: they won't notice it because you'll be compassionate. It's not like you're, you're not saying, "Well, it's your karma. Too bad. I'm having tea." <laughs> you're not doing that because there is the compassion, the joy, the goodwill. So, on a on a social level, you're always operating. You know, uh, more ice. Uh, what, what do you want? That's what they'll see. But what they what what they'll also see is if you're worried, and you're patronizing, and you're overconcerned. That'll get them uptight quite often. So what you're letting go is that part. The kind of anxiety and fussiness and are you okay, are you okay, are you Okay. you know You're letting go of that. So there's peaceful compassion. Uh, so, I, you know, most people would just notice the compassion, be you know grateful to you. That's why the four are necessary. If you only had the one, the equanimity, the, the, the compassion part is what you act on. That's what you act on.
1: But sometimes, like, and not that you, st- you say, okay, this is your karma or whatever. You try, you think that you're trying. Like, especially, I have the same thing with my mom. And like, sometimes I, I, I think I tried everything, being busy doing my PhD. I took her to every single appointment. I do everything I can. But still, if you talk to her, like, sometimes she, she's not happy. She's still things that I do things for myself that I don't care, you know, so... That's no, this, yeah, it might be like Sometimes she tells me you
0: become too Canadian, so... That's known so. as mom laying a trip on her child. <laughs> that's her problem. Yeah. It's your problem, too. But uh, you kind of think, yeah, well, when you have a mother, this is what you get. <laughs> and, and... No, you you you'll, you can never make you can never make another person happy. That's not the object of the game. It's just to do what's right, and then where they're coming from depends on their conditioning and their capacity to reflect. So the more difficult, you know, the more hard, it is to take care of them. That's just, and then if they're very difficult, they end up alone and thinking, why am I alone? <laughs> <You know? laughs> but. You know, mother-daughter, mother, mother father-son, you know, all those relationships are very fraught. They're powerful. They're not rational. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff in there. So what you're trying to de- develop is upekha, equanimity, around the reactiveness you have to your mom. She's not going to do it.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <You know?
0: laughs> it's not like, mom, you do 50%, I'll do 50%. <laughs> you got to do 100. If she does 20, good. She doesn't, it's you know it's the only way you can operate. But the more you are non-reactive to her, the more you can just take a hit as it were, the less you'll feed those old cycles. And the more of a chance you'll have to get out of those old cycles. You see that in couples, say, you know, a couple and it's just nya, 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 all the time. Sometimes I go have a Donna with a couple somewhere and, and I say, Oh, don't do that to each other. I can't say anything, right? Because I'm a guest there. Oh, oh, you said. Oh, you said that. Don't, no, please, don't do that. <laughs> and it's just a horrible habit, yes. you know. that They've gotten caught up into. So kids and, and parents do that too. And, and parents, you know, look at a. You know, like my, my, my brother. Sometimes he looks at me as a kid. Right, he's older brother. So old patterns can kind of get triggered off very easily. Um, but you, if you don't buy into them. There's a chance of something different coming up. But it always is just about your own heart. And the, rest, the rest is bigger than us.